I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our podcast that showcases the wealth of analytic talent in our ranks. And it's my exceedingly great pleasure today to have with me Nick Crawford from the Conflict Security and Development Team. He did his undergraduate work at Cambridge, where he is still, I think, associated with the Wilberforce uh, Institute there. Maybe we will have time for him to tell us about that. Okay. He did his graduate work at the Herdy School in Berlin, and he works on the Armed Conflict Database, the Armed Conflict Survey, which we uh, just about a month ago released, the 2019 issue of. And he also does a lot of work uh, on geoeconomics. Nick, welcome to Sound Strategic. Thank you very much, Corey. It's a pleasure. Start us off by talking about something you work on that is timely right now, that's splashed all over the news. Okay, well, I can't say it's been splashed all over the news, but um, a, a pretty significant event took place uh, earlier this month, uh, and that was that the IMF Executive Board approved a bailout package uh, for the Republic of Congo. Doesn't directly affect us us here, perhaps, but obviously it, it's pretty big news uh, in the Republic of Congo, and it has some wider ramifications as well. So, the Republic of Congo is one of many uh, African states, but states around the world that receive a lot of lending uh, from China. Um, over the past uh, couple of decades, China's lending to these countries has increased really significantly, and and some countries have ended up in debt distress, uh, and the Republic of Congo I is one of them. And what's kind of significant about this uh, bailout package that the IMF has, has agreed is that it came with uh, a sort of condition, which was that the Republic of Congo had to uh, reschedule its debts uh, with China. Um, that, that kind of coordination between the IMF and China is, is quite an, an important thing and, and something we're probably going to see more of over the coming years because uh, debt levels are increasing, well, quite significantly. In fact, another thing that you may have seen in the news recently was that uh, there was a really, really impressive research paper produced by uh, Sebastian Horn, uh, Carmen Reinhardt, uh, and uh, Christoph Trebesch. Um, that was <coughs> earlier in July, and they kind of exposed the the, the scale of, of hidden lending, the, 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 the amount of lending by China to a lot of um, particularly poor, especially African states, uh, that hasn't been fully documented, uh, at least internationally. Um, and and the, the levels of debt that that they reveal in that paper are quite alarming. Some papers, uh, sorry, some countries <laughs> are approaching the levels of debt last seen in the 1970s and 1980s when we had uh, the big sovereign debt crises. Uh, give us a sense of magnitude. What's the IMF bailout to the DRC? Okay, the size of a bailout is about $450 million uh, over the course of three years, which doesn't sound like a huge amount, uh, but it's an initial package uh, which is supposed to ease the uh, repayments of debts, uh, ease the, the, the fiscal situation of the Republic of Congo for the coming years, whilst they 
can the government of Republic of Congo make a number of reforms so that their future debts are, are more sustainable? So your point about the opaqueness of the debt picture, both for uh, Chinese lending and systemically, uh, I think is a really interesting point. And uh, the Belt and Road uh, projects that China has engaged in do not require, and in most cases, explicitly prevent uh, transparency of the terms of the contract. And so the IMF has been navigating this carefully. The US and other IMF board members have objected to IMF funds being used for bailing out countries that accepted BRI projects that China, that they can't sustain the repayment for on the argument that there's a reason the Bretton Woods institutions aren't making these loans, and that's because they don't think the repayment schedule is sustainable. How does China joining the IMF board and having a major share of the unsustainable debt in countries like the DRC, how does that play out either within the IMF decision making or for a country like the Congo? The concerns about China's lending in, in unsustainable ways, I think are most importantly dawning on, on China uh, in that th there's a real concern that they aren't going to get their money back from quite a number of projects. And uh, you know, China isn't lending uh, simply out of the, the goodness of its heart. I mean, uh, China lends uh, with commercial or near commercial rates of interest whereas, say, the IMF, the World Bank, and, and most Western states, not, not private companies, but states, uh, lend at subsidized rates, and often there's a big grant component of any lending. So, you know, you can see that China is actually expecting some return on its lending. Um, and as countries enter this kind of debt distress, they're, they're not getting the, the repayments, or those repayments are, are in doubt. So, actually, you're seeing that China is is trying to ease that debt burden a little bit so that in those countries that face uh, debt distress, um, they, have a, they have a bit more wiggle room within their, <laughs> within their fiscal budgets. We also, though, see some examples of the Chinese uh, repossessing infrastructure that was part of it. Haman Port comes to mind. How does that fit into how you view what China's trying to do here? Yeah, I, this, this is really interesting. Th and the idea that uh, China is pursuing an aggressive debt trap diplomacy approach uh, is, is quite prevalent. Um, now, this debt trap diplomacy is, is widely understood in, in the terms you mentioned, that uh, China is lending with the explicit aim of trapping other countries in a situation where they need to surrender assets to China in part repayment for loans. Now, to my mind, the evidence for this isn't particularly strong. You cited the one case in which this is really the, th this really seems to be uh, as you state. Hamantota port in Sri Lanka. So uh, Sri Lanka's debts to China uh, became somewhat unsustainable. And a 99-year lease was agreed on Hamantota port uh, to a Chinese company. But actually, that 
agreement between the Sri Lankan government uh, and the Chinese government and the Chinese company came more at the behest of the Sri Lankan government than it did at the Chinese. And in fact, the Sri Lankan government also proposed uh, that the international airport in Sri Lanka also be uh, given over to a Chinese company to, uh, in the form of a lease. Um, and, and, that, and that didn't happen. In fact, China said, no, we're not interested in this. There aren't other clear cases of uh, debt for equity uh, swaps. Um, in fact, China has engaged in some 140 external debt restructurings with other countries since 2000. Um, and as I say, it's not, it's not obviously in China's, in China's interest to take over projects that, at least at the present, aren't delivering the returns that everyone expected. Now, Unless returns are not the right metric. It, yeah. Right? So access to deep water ports might be the metric. The ability to project military power might be the objective. Absolutely. Um, uh, but equally holding airports might be uh, valuable too, but th this isn't something that China has pursued. And as I say, there's only one obvious case of that. It's also, uh, this is a line that you've used previously, Corey, which is that you know, maybe... If that were China's strategy, it's maybe maybe not playing its hand so well. As you s your phrase, I think, is uh, that China has activated the antibodies against it rather early. Mm. Uh, and I think if China were to be pursuing a strategy of aggressively seizing strategic assets in lots of countries, it's doing so in a way that is already worrying lots of people. I think that's right. I. I, Pakistan is looking to reschedule some of the potential projects. Malaysia's government, elect, the election in Malaysia mm. turned on the different candidates' views about the BRI. I, I do think it's really interesting that you have only one of 140, and it has set off that much alarm. Yeah. So, as our listeners could tell by the fact that Nick was quoting me as a sword to stab <laughs> me with, um, that this institution loves itself best in rigorous data-based argument about what are the big questions and what are the broad trends we see. How will we know when a, when a tidal current changes course? And that's what we are doing uh, right now on the Belt and Road Initiative. We have a big project looking at, that Nick is participating in, that looks at three different potential trajectories. The first is if BRI works as designed and it provides loans for infrastructure development that assists developing countries and that shifts trade patterns and positions China advantageously in value chains for the future economy. The second potential trajectory is the debt trap trajectory. And what does that mean for security of Western countries? What might that ask of us in terms of the debtor countries making appeals? And then the third trajectory is what if the Chinese government is so invested in the success of BRI that it gives levers for us to reinforce the rules-based order? What opportunities might this create for us? But, 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 that is only one part of Nick Crawford's work. Nick, how did you get interested in conflict, security, and development in the first place? 
Ooh, um, that's a long question. I'm sure that has something to do with uh, my interest when I was a child. But um, the, the, the kind of stage at which I first began to explore this topic uh, in some depth was, as you mentioned, when I was at, at Cambridge and uh, I was involved in this student initiative, a student think tank called the Wilberforce Society. And when I was there, uh, I worked on a, a research paper on the northeast of India and the insurgency and counterinsurgency there. And I also uh, did a little bit of work on uh, UK Army detention policies in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Then I went on, inspired by that, to study a Master of Public Policy and uh, became more and more interested in development. And indeed, uh, after uh, my time at the Hurti School, I worked in international development for a while. Uh, and it was while I was working in, in international development that I realized uh, that we pay too little attention in the international development world uh, to the other big state actors. We've been very focused for the past couple of decades on what we as Western states can achieve in terms of international development. And we've neglected the fact that actually China is one of the most influential actors on the ground, uh, Russia in many conflict-affected areas, and indeed regional powers. So I worked a bit on Libya, and of course it's the UAE, it's Turkey, it's Egypt that have influence on the ground there, not just the West. That's excellent, which leads on nicely to my next question. What's your favorite book in your field? Well, my favorite book, um, I mean, I have many favorite books, but my favorite book... Which is the accepted double I, double S answer. All of us have a <laughs> legion of favorite books. And selecting one was difficult, but the one I've, I've selected to, to mention now is The Looting Machine by Tom Burgess, who's a journalist at the Financial Times. And The Looting Machine was published in, I think, 2016. And it documents... Um, many cases of uh, corruption and illicit finance uh, in African states and how uh, the revenues from mining and from oil are uh, enriching the elites of those countries and indeed flowing out of those countries, enriching people in, in the West, uh, in China, uh, private individuals and states. But what I find really interesting about it is uh, the very visceral descriptions of what corruption looks like in some of these uh, resource-rich African states. Um, the mechanisms that, that are put in place by the political elites to allow them to profit from uh, the rents on natural resources. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we've spoken about, about Chinese lending. This focuses much more on private activity, but they're one of, the one of the biggest concerns about Chinese lending to African states is, is that it has fueled corruption, and indeed there's very good evidence that it has fueled corruption, uh, not just in Africa, but in, uh, in, in many other con uh, continents besides. Uh, and as the looting machine very clearly explains, this has such a deleterious effect on the politics of these countries and on their economic development. Yeah, it's a fabulous book. Uh, I, I too commend it and think that it helps understand why corruption is rational in political systems and also the mendacity of external actors 
including extractive industry companies and including governments for aggravating fragile political developments. I think it's a superb book. Uh, so next on my list is where is the conventional wisdom wrong in your field? Well, this is really where I wanted to go back to that uh, debt trap policy. Now, I think there are lots of problems uh, with China's lending uh, to the developed world. I think uh, it's causing debt levels to rise unsustainably. It's fueling corruption. The lending also has uh, bad uh, environmental effects in, in many cases. But the idea that China is deliberately trapping countries in severe debt is something I don't think there's sufficient evidence for at the moment. Uh, it may be that uh, China pursues a much wider policy of debt for equity swaps uh, in debt distressed countries in the near future, but uh, as yet, I don't think the evidence is there. Um, as, I, as I say, I've mentioned the debt restructurings, but also you know, China's lending is highly correlated with its investments. And for countries to end up in debt distress when China has significant investments there, it creates quite significant economic and also political risks for Chinese companies that I, 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 can't, I don't currently think can be the deliberately, deliberate policy uh, of the Chinese state. But uh, as I always said, I'm very happy to be proved wrong when the evidence, uh, when the evidence indicates that. Yeah. Uh, it is not only an admirable personal characteristic, <laughs> but it's the fingerprint of this institution as well. That, um, on, would it make any difference if China was willing to allow greater transparency in the contracting of BRI? Would that, would that help uh, China hawks, people who, who believe they see debt tra trap diplomacy, is there a way we could argue to the Chinese that it's actually in their interest to be a lot more transparent? Because if it's not debt trap diplomacy, that's how they're getting judged. I think it's absolutely in China's interest to be more transparent in the future. Um, as I said, debt levels are really increasing in a number of countries. Um, and debt, further debt rescheduling looks uh, very likely. Now, when it comes to... Um, uh, rescheduling sovereign debt, uh, having a clear understanding of what the debt levels really are will enable us to provide more effective debt relief, um, whether that's rescheduling, whether that's additional lending, whether it's debt cancellations. But we can't effectively judge the economic risk that faces these countries if uh, we, collectively, China and uh, creditors who belong to the Paris Club, have a good understanding of the real debt levels. Excellent. So if, if listeners could only read or see one piece of work you have done, what would you direct them to? Well, I would uh, like to encourage people to read uh, a report that is forthcoming. Uh, so my recent work has been looking at how China responds to, how China manages instability in some of its partner countries. And I've, I've focused on Zimbabwe and, and Venezuela because they're two contemporary cases of uh, Chinese partners that are facing quite significant instability, both political and economic. And 
This goes back to the motivation from my work, why I became interested in it. Unless we understand what China's interests are in some of these countries, and unless we understand how China intends to go about uh, managing that instability or responding to it, we won't know how to work with them in some of these cases. So uh, what I would love to do is to help to inform uh, Western policymakers on, on China's approach to instability in developing countries so that we can work perhaps a little bit together. Excellent. Last question, my friend. What's your favorite data visualization? My favorite and my anti-favorite uh, <laughs> data visualization at the same time okay. are the data visualizations from the uh, Observatory of Economic Complexity on tr trade imports and exports and the in terms of products and also the countries uh, to which uh, you're importing or exporting. So they provide these lovely rectangular diagrams that are broken down uh, by percentage as to what the exports are and, and you can explore this in more depth. So for example, for Zambian exports, you can see that a very large percent of Zambian exports are copper, both raw copper and unrefined copper. And you can click through that and you can see to which countries uh, Zambia is exporting copper. Now oh, earlier, it's great, it's really great. Um, now earlier this year, I was, I was in Namibia and as you drive along Namibian roads, uh, these convoys of huge trucks uh, pass you with copper bars from, uh, or copper sheets uh, from Zambia. And they're making their way to Walvish Bay, uh, which is <laughs> uh, a Chinese-built uh, port <laughs> on the coast of Namibia, and, and then they're shipped. And if you ask anyone in Namibia or in Zambia, no, where, where is all this copper going? It, well, it's, it's going to China. Indeed, China uh, imports 44% of the world's copper. But if you look <laughs> Uh, these wonderful infographics from the Observatory of Economic Complexity, uh, it appears that Switzerland is the largest uh, importer of Zambian copper. <laughs> and this highlights the <laughs> limitations of statistics. Uh, the, uh, the Observatory of Economic Complexity's infographics rely on data from UN Comtrade, which is the UN database of international trade statistics. And the Zambian copper is sold to Swiss trading companies, which means that it looks like Zambian copper is primarily exported to Switzerland, which it isn't. It goes on to China, it goes on to Germany, it goes on to a number of other countries. And so this just highlights for me quite nicely the <laughs> limitations of statistics and the importance of doing qualitative work as well and delving a little bit behind the initial numbers. Oh, three cheers. That is, a, that is the best answer anyone has ever given to this <laughs> question, which is not only the value of the visualization that they provide, but using it with a clear-eyed sense of what its limits are and what it cannot tell you. One of the things I love about IISS as a data-driven organization is that we know when numbers don't have meaning, <laughs> in addition to knowing when numbers do have meaning. So Nick Crawford, thank you so much for teaching us about the IMF bailout of the Democratic Republic of Congo, for your sense that 
that we are looming towards a global sovereign debt crisis of the kind that we saw in the 1980s, and that uh, China's lending does not look to you like debt trap diplomacy, yes. but that it would absolutely be in their interest to be more transparent given the, the sovereign debt crisis that may be looming and that they could get out ahead of looking like uh, the cause of this if they actually were more transparent. And thank you to you for the suggestion of The Looting Machine, a book all of us should go read, and for the chance to look around the uh, Observatory of Economic Complexities visualizations, both for its what it can tell us and for all of us better training our judgment about what statistics and visualizations can't tell us. Nick Crawford, thank you, my friend. Thank you, Corey, very much.